Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, and thanks for downloading this episode of the Attacking Scrum podcast. Now, if you've been listening for a few years, you will know that in 2018, uh, I did an interview with Jamie Roberts, which sadly never saw the light of day due to a technical fault, which I only found out uh, on the night I was trying to edit it uh, and publish the podcast. Uh, I finally got over that, and uh, what's helped to get over it is we've got this episode, uh, a good chat with Jamie Roberts at long last. So uh, yeah, it's only been nearly four years in the making but here we go at last we've got a chat with uh, with Jamie Roberts um, so in this episode we sit down with uh, Ross Harris who's been on the show a couple of times before of course you will know him uh, from Scrum 5 and uh, also a fantastic author in his own right he co-wrote the book with with Jamie or ghost uh, ghostwriter essentially and uh, yeah started off by having a chat with Ross and then Jamie joins us uh, during the podcast as well even though he's dashing around across Cardiff uh, managed to to find time for us and um, and dialed in, which is absolutely fantastic. Now, autobiographies can often be uh, something of a dull affair and not necessarily go into too much detail when it comes to the big issues. But it's safe to say that Centre Stage is not one of those books. Jamie's tackled a load of uh, a load of the big issues and created a lot of debate. Uh, there plenty of things in there that, that people haven't agreed with. Uh, there's, there's stuff in there that I haven't agreed with as well, but it was great to have a chat with him and um, and get those opinions and uh, and have a yeah a good old-fashioned uh, debate about uh, about Welsh rugby, something that obviously we love to do on this show. So yeah, if you get a chance, check out the book. It's called Centre Stage and it is available now. And uh, yeah, once again, a big thanks to Jamie and to Ross for, for joining us. Right, on with the show. Murray to Jamie Roberts. Oh, Roberts is going through now. It's done. It's dusted. Archive it. History made. Welcome to a very special edition of the Attacking Scrum podcast. It is my great pleasure to welcome back, I suppose, 
almost friend of the show now, Ross. It's Ross Harris. How are you? I'm very well, Jed. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah, great to uh, great to have you on. We were um, chatting just beforehand about uh, about the the book that, uh, uh, that you've written with with Jamie Roberts, Centre Stage, Jamie's uh, autobiography, and uh, yeah, it's caused. Um, well, I say it's, it's caused a stir in a good way because there's there's clearly plenty of stuff in there, and the, and the press have picked up on that. Um, I suppose we'll, we'll start with that. Really, how how early on into the writing process did you realise there was going to be there was going to be a lot to work with? We've spoken before, Jed, Jed, about you know the whole writing process, and and when Jamie and I sat down to discuss the book, you know, we 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 were both fairly clear that there was only any point doing a book if you had something to say. You know, if I knew that Jamie had a good story to tell because we all kind of know the basics of his life and career, the fact he's combined rugby at the very top level with some pretty serious university studies, you know, chip training to become a medic at the, the same time he was representing Wales and the Lions. Not many people. I've traveled that path. So, so I knew there was definitely, you know, the, the bare bones of a good story, but he's also a bright guy who's quite opinionated. So we kind of made this pledge very early on that, you know, there was no point doing a book unless he was going to put some of those opinions down on the page. And turns out, as you've said, you know, it's, it's had a bit of traction in the press because he's got fairly strident opinions on things like the 60 cap policy on the, you know, stay in Wales to play for Wales on regional rugby, not necessarily um, a return to the clubs and the old system of you know nine clubs or or more than nine clubs. He just wants to see the existing regions rebranded so that they kind of harness the history um, you know is attached to them all. So yeah, a few of those things have been picked up, and you know the English press have latched onto certain stories like the the Sam Burgess saga at the 2015 World Cup, uh, which is understandably something that will pique the interest of uh, of their readers, and, and the Welsh press have probably latched on more to the. The 60 cap stuff and the, the more political stuff, which we all, I say we all love talking about it. We kind of love and hate talking about it at the same time, don't we? But it, it never fails to generate column inches in this part of the world. Yeah, the thing that we can't stop talking about, maybe. Yeah, sometimes it's love, sometimes it's hate. How well did you know Jamie before, uh, before writing the book? Fairly well. You know, our careers have almost run in parallel. Um, you know, my broadcasting career sort of began roughly when he was getting capped. In fact, it, it occurred to the both of us uh, when we wrote the book that when he got selected for the Lions in 2009, um, a young impressionable BBC journalist was dispatched to his house to interview him when he was in the midst of a house party. Uh, and that uh, journalist was me. So it, it kind of made us realize actually, yeah, that was when I was kind of, I wasn't even in sport then, I was in news. But as a massive rugby fan, I kind of volunteered, I'll go and do it. Um, and it was hilarious because he was 21 at the time and a student and he was living in this house in Cardiff. And we were trying to do a kind of, kind of semi-serious interview on the steps of his house. And all of his student mates were just filing in with, you know, crates of beer and bottles of whiskey. And all of them were already half cut, piling into his house to celebrate the fact he'd been selected for the Lions. So it was it was quite a memorable interview. But but that was the moment we thought, actually, yeah, we've, we've sort of known each other, you know, reasonably well since that point because you know followed his career closely through the grand slams the lions tours and whatnot so it was actually a fairly easy alliance when it came down to it because there's already a bit of mutual trust there um but obviously i've got to know him a, a heck of a lot better over the last 12 months or so the interesting thing that you touch on there is because obviously you you say you're a, you're a big rugby fan i think that's why i've always enjoyed you know enjoyed the couple of chats that we've had beforehand is 
you know, obviously you've got your, your broadcast career, but it's you know, you're very, very knowledgeable on, on the sport. And I think see it from the, you know, you can still see that fan is, is still alive in you, you know, even despite working in the in the industry for a long time. When you when you're writing a a book like this, do you kind of reassess some of those moments that you've lived through as a you've lived through as a fan and see them through a different lens? Yeah, I think you do. You know, my wife always jokes that I'm nowhere near as passionate as I was when she first met me. Because you know, I, I she could barely sit and watch a rugby match in my presence because <laughs> I was so ludicrously passionate, and you know, it would upset me for days afterwards if my team lost. And I guess being it being my profession to a degree has has kind of got rid of some of that. I'm a little bit more level-headed, probably a bit more mature as well. Um, so yeah, you're right. When you when you look at things then through the lens of history, I suppose, you you do look at it from a different perspective, you know, not just from a fans or a broadcaster's perspective, but you really need to get inside, in this case, Jamie's mind, um, to try and explore some of the emotions or, or at least try and understand some of the emotions he'd have been feeling. And there's a couple of real crunch points, you know, in a book where we talk about those two parallel lives, you know, the academia on one side and rugby on the other, as, as almost these two train tracks running in parallel, both of them going roughly the same speed in the same direction. And this constant risk that they might just collide and both things would blow up in his face. And there was a point at which they nearly did. It was 2013 and the weak Wales were preparing to face England in that defining game in that championship was also the week he was sitting in his final medical exams. And someone like, you know, a mere mortal like myself, I could not get my head around why you would voluntarily put yourself under that much pressure. You know, to do one of those things would probably make most of us go weak at the knees, but to do both of them at the same time is almost perverse. So there were a lot of our conversations where I just had to drill really deep to try and understand, because I, I can't understand that at surface level, you know, and I, I was almost like an amateur psychologist, you know, explain to me what it is about the way your brain's wired, that you almost invite that kind of pressure. And he does, you know, there, there's an almost perverse side to his personality where he doesn't feel like he's fully alive unless he's got all this stuff on his plate. And it's almost this delayed gratification thing. If he can see the triumph beyond it, he can focus on that knowing that it will be worth it when he gets there. So yeah, a lot of that stuff, whereas before I would have just watched that game from a, like a broadcaster's point of view, what an epic match and, and what a brilliant narrative. Do, seeing it from his point of view as an individual living every moment was, was a totally different kind of lens, as you say. And do you see that, you know, that part, the, the kind of the psychology, if you like, behind it, does that then again almost make you reassess him as a player, knowing that that, that was what was going on in, uh, in his life at, at that particular moment in time? Yeah, I think so, because, you know, Jamie is one of those guys who was very successful in that era under Warren Gatland. And we, we kind of, we thought a lot of them were almost invulnerable to criticism. You know, they, they were so, the, the ethos of the team was just this powerful, teak tough side that came and, kind of knocked the hinges off the doors. You know, there wasn't much subtlety there, but I suppose we all thought that they were impervious to the slings and arrows of, of public opinion. But you, you realise actually, you know, everyone's human. And there were some really dark times in his career where he did feel 
you know the pain and, and the suffering and stuff and, and you realize that this exterior image you know this hulking great huge bloke actually hides a fairly sensitive center um and i think one of the things we explored to pick up on that point was this notion you know that he when warren gatland's game plan got criticized for being too one-dimensional and and not imaginative enough he was almost the focal point of that criticism because he was seen as the linchpin of that game plan and i think he, he a lot of that criticism was heaped on mm. his shoulders it was interesting just getting his perspective on how that affected him you know personally yeah that's just a really good point and I, I suppose again i never thought of that because they're the chats that you have down the pub you know and and again as a fan you tend to look at these things and that from that you know from a very very different perspective not just because you're not playing but because you see the game you see the game differently so yeah it's really uh, it's really interesting to hear it that way something that i um that i kind of found very interesting reading about was um kind of warren gatlin's man management um methods and how again not in a not in a critical way but jamie seems to say that um you know, didn't have a, many deep and meaningful conversations because yeah. he knew that Gatland had a way of kind of pulling his strings to to get the best out of him in that way. Yeah, and he'll tell you, you know, that it, it took him a while to to realise that was the case. You know, it's with the benefit of hindsight, you think actually that was quite clever coaching, whereas at the time you might feel you're being spurned or ignored or belittled or, or whatever it may be. Um, but he, he had this idea that you know Gatland viewed every player as a different entity so you know that player needs to be humiliated sometimes in front of the boys if he's to if he's to learn his lessons whereas that player if you do that to him he'll retreat into a shell and become half the player he's capable of being so Jamie's thing you know and, and Sean Edwards admitted this to him later on that they would never publicly praise him because they didn't think that would work with him you know it would swell his ego too much and so they would rather tell him privately what he was doing well, but actually highlight his mistakes to his colleagues to keep his ego in check. Um, and they did that with a lot of players, by all accounts. You know, he wasn't the only one they, they treated that way. So I think it was a very calculated move on, on Warren Gatlin's behalf. And, and like you say, it's, it's not necessarily a criticism. It's just an acknowledgement that actually the almost aloof approach he took was, was deliberate. You know, in order to get the best out of these players, and he, he almost let some of his lieutenants, like Rob Howley or McBride, get closer to them on a personal level. He saw his role as the the overseer. If you see what I mean? Yeah. Go, he can tell you himself. There we go. Right. Well, uh, we'll we'll pause for one moment while uh, while Jamie's audio connects. Evening, guys. How are you? Very well. How are you? Yeah, good. Good. So I've been running around like a madman this evening. Um, no, it's, yeah, it's good. We've, sorry, I'm a bit late. No worries at all. Yeah, we've just been chatting about um, about kind of the writing process, and uh, I was saying how there's um, you know been plenty of plenty of headlines written, but there seems like there's a huge amount of um, a huge amount of things you kind of wanted to wanted to say during this book as well. It's not your standard up and down autobiography. You've got plenty of big rugby issues that you that you want to talk about. Did you know? Did you know that when you kind of went to went to kind of start writing writing the book that you you know you wanted to be very very frank? Well, I think it's pointless writing a book otherwise, unless you can be honest. Um, yeah, look, I, th I think we've all all got different opinions about certain aspects of the game. Um, 
and you know it's, it's been funny the reaction actually um you know i've had half half, half my mates messaging me you say oh mate love your work really really you know appreciate your honesty and what have you and then you've got a couple of fans tweeting you uh, completely disagreeing with you and I, th I think that's healthy i think you know we can't all agree on everything um but you know that's the way I saw I see issues in the game, um, and it's good to get that down on paper. I, you know, if it steers some healthy debates, well then great. Um, but yeah, those, those are just my opinions. If people agree with them, great. If they don't, even you know, great. It doesn't really doesn't really matter. I, I think writing a book is about putting those things out there and being honest about what you think about certain things. So uh, it's been a, it's been a nice experience to do that, um, and I hope people enjoy. Enjoy reading the book. It's, um, I guess, when you're sitting down with Ross and and, and going to write it, I, I guess my career isn't your sort of archetypal rugby career. I've travelled quite a bit, um, obviously studied across the country uh, and, and experienced different leagues um, in the game, obviously representative rugby, different teams, etc. So, you know, it's, it's an amazing experience, some great stories in there. Um, and certainly about, you know, growing up playing rugby in Cardiff and then, um, you know, going getting to, to play for the British Lions and, and you know, my path to, to achieving that. Obviously, yeah, you mentioned there a number of different experiences playing abroad. Is there uh, is there one of those that kind of particularly stands out as one you've enjoyed the most? Um, look, it's, it's, that's very difficult. Um, each has with it pros and cons. I, I remember when I left Cardiff to move to play in Paris, um, for the first probably three or four months, I really struggled. I really struggled. I I got injured in one of my early kind of warm-up games. I did my ankle and an operation which kept me out for 12 weeks. And I was living on my own. I didn't know the language well. And, you know, there were some nights sat in my apartment just thinking, what the hell have I done? You know, I had a great life in Cardiff. I'd grown up there. I'd, I'd graduated recently. You know, Cardiff wanted to offer me a contract and... Uh, when all the factors were at play, you know, who, which people are letting down, am I, you know, being unfaithful to my city side, etc. All these, obviously, all those things come into your mind when you're making such a decision. And I'm sat there in my flat, just thinking, what on earth have I done? And I reflect on it. Certainly, it took me, you know, three, four months. Then I started to learn the language, you know, good network of people, started enjoying my rugby after, you know, being injured. And by the end of my time there, I reflected on it as the best thing I'd ever done in my life. You know, putting myself out my comfort zone, leaving my home city. Um, you know, it's crazy to think that I was even contemplating not doing it because I was I was very much that way as a as a kid. It was all about travel, um, all about taking those experiences. Any opportunity that comes your way in life, I was always the first to say yes. You can always turn it down later. I would say yes to everything. I still do. Um, and it's crazy to even think that I was I was contemplating not taking that opportunity. You know, 26 as a single guy, got offered a big contrast to live in one of the best cities in the world, uh, and I was still in a minor in whether or not to do it. Um, it was crazy, crazy when I reflect on on that decision nine years ago now. And as I said, best best thing I did. So probably Paris. Look, I I loved my time at Harlequins and Bath, and obviously South Africa for a short period, but. That um that fears in Paris were just just amazing and it's such such a awesome city to live in. 
in that Anna played in a brilliant, brilliant wrestling side who have gone on to achieve, you know, huge success over recent past. So, you know, to be a part of that, um, I, I didn't win any trophies there, but to be a part of that journey with that, with that side and that coaching group was pretty cool. And, um, you know, you obviously spoken there about the, the experience as a, you know, growing as a person as much as the rugby experience. Is that the kind of the, the crux of the, um, I guess, the, the reason you disagree with that 60 cap rule is that it's, it's preventing other players from having that, that opportunity to go and, and grow as players and as individuals? Uh, yes, I, I guess that's the crux of it. And look, on one hand, you've got this opportunity for individuals, you know, out their comfort zones, experiencing new environments, kind of experience rugby on the continent. Um, as, as we said, you know, growing as people, you know, seeing the world. And on the other hand, you've got the argument that they get an extra week's preparation playing in Wales. Um, let's bear in mind, there's only one game played outside the window each year. Um, so I don't think that argument really stands because it's only for only for one game in one week of the year when we're talking about this, this 60 cap rule. Um, but yeah, you know, the big argument is that we, we get them for an extra week's training. Now, yeah, as I said, on one hand, you've got this exposure to different experiences and lads growing and, and becoming better people and better players. And then you've got this extra week's training. And, you know, at the minute, more weight is placed on that extra week's training. Um, and it's certainly tilted tilted so far that way that it's like, no, you can't play abroad. We won't have you for this extra week's training. Yes, there's a the funding model, etc., and you know, best players playing in Wales. You know, there's huge arguments for it, but I, I just think too much weight is placed on the extra week's training because it players back in for one week's training before a test match. But players who are wiser to the world, who have experienced, you know, we talked about all the factors. I'd argue that's probably more beneficial to Team Wales than than that extra week's training in itself. I suppose that, yeah, you've touched on the um, having the best players play in Wales argument. I suppose that's the other counter argument is, you know, if you were to take a side that you're, you know, that you're playing in right now with the Dragons and, you know, there's there's a, a crop of really talented youngsters there at the moment. If they're offered contracts elsewhere, um, you know, it'd be very, very hard for that, for, for the Dragons to compete if they if they were elsewhere. You know, I suppose yeah, that, true, that potentially but is the other with, argument. With, with the current rules in England and in France not many would and so you know signing foreign players mate there's not many it's there's not many British players now playing in France because of the GIF rules mm. and also the non-EQP rules that English England's have in their league uh, so certainly when I was playing out in France and a whole host of us were playing out in France you know Charterish, Jonathan Davis, Mikey Phillips, Gethin Jenkins these lads um all, all over the border in England. I mean, it was it was a handful um, of players, you know, five, six, seven, eight players at most. So, you know, to call that a, a player drain, I think is probably a bit far. But look, I, I completely get the counter argument. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm all for healthy debate on this thing. I'm, I'm a big believer that senior players have uh, a huge part to play in, in passing on that IP to, to younger players at squads. But also... I guess if, if senior players aren't there, that provides opportunity for others to play and grow. So but there's, there's no right or wrong to this argument. Um, it's just the way I see it. It's, it's, it's my opinion. And uh, I 
like the the other thing that frustrates me is is where does the number sixty come from? Mm. I mean, uh, who decided that? Like, where, where, where is it plucked out of thin air? Who's who's who has decided that sixty equals service? I mean, like it's it's crazy. It doesn't take into account you. You know, you might be sat on the bench for for forty games for Wales and not got on over the course of seven seasons and. And you know it's, it's 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 such an arbitrary number, um, and it also doesn't take into account um, your your, I guess your service to to club rugby in Wales. That was the Reese Webb argument, wasn't it? You know, he, fifty caps I think when he left for Toulon, but he'd he'd been with the Ospreys since the academy days. So he, yeah, and, and we're turning around 10, and saying years given. Yeah, yeah, and because he hasn't got sixty caps, it, he hasn't. Done his service to his country. I mean, you can fly back from France in an hour. Yeah, it's it's not difficult. And you know, he's playing where he's been offered his, you know, a great contract. Um, and he's and he's putting himself out of his comfort zone, playing at playing at clubs he wants to play at. It's um, yeah, it's difficult. It doesn't just doesn't sit well with me. And I'm like, I'm I'm glad I've spoken my mind on it. Like, people can disagree. Um, so the cows come home, but. And I respect, you know, like I respect all 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 angles on on the arguments, and I think it's just a it's a healthy debate, and I I just hope there's a bit of manoeuvre in it because I I'd love to see young players. I mean, you look at that team from the weekend, um, and who's playing in England. You look at the Wales team that beat Fiji on the weekend. Dan Bigger's playing in England. Um, Nick Tompkins is playing in England. Johnny Williams played his trade in Newcastle. He, you know, I think he became the player he did. Playing his trade in Newcastle, Lewis Rizam is playing in Gloucester. Liam Williams, arguably had his best seasons at club level playing in Saracens, um, and Alex Cuthbert's just come back from Exeter. And t- so, Tom Young as well. Well, if you take Tom Young. Um, I've got to go through the forwards. Yeah. Chris, who came on to make his debuts, playing in Exeter. Will Rowlands had some top top years at Wasps. Um, Will Griff John. No, Tom Francis mm. didn't start, but he came. He's played in Exeter. So, like, it's it's great. Um, as I said, a lot of these guys have become the players they are and certainly grown their game um, as players and, you know, grown as people uh, by playing outside of Wales. Um, something I find quite interesting is, you know, obviously there's always, there's always lots of rugby autobiographies out there. Um, kind of what made you want to write this now while, um, you know, while you're, you're still playing and, Rather than than kind of waiting and wait until you'd finished, was there was there something that kind of triggered wanting to to kind of relive those experiences? Um, well, I think if I waited another year or two, people have forgotten who <laughs> forgotten who the hell I am. To be honest, look, I haven't played for Wales in in four years, um, you know, and that ship has has probably sailed. Never say never, but it's probably sailed. So, um, yeah, whether I play another year or two. Um, well, it remains to be seen, but it just felt the time was right to really do it. So I, I didn't want to wait too much longer, and I didn't want really want to do it earlier, to be honest. Um, you know, I know lads have written books in the middle of their careers and great. It's just something I, I didn't really see, you know, benefit in doing. Um, yeah, and I'm glad I've written it. It's um, you know, it's been a really enjoyable experience. It's quite a um, cleansing experience, if I can put it that way. Just kind of talking about times in my life and times in my career that I've rarely spoken to people about, you know, we're quite, 
I think as blokes, we're quite shy to share emotions, aren't we, um, around certain things and, and the tough times and, you know, and even the good times. You know, you only speak about them maybe with one or two close people in your life. Um, so to get that all out there and then there's emotions I felt at the time, etc. I hope it gives insight to others as to what it's really like as a, as a professional sportsman. You know, I think it's a, as a rugby player, you do all these press interviews and they, they can be quite samey and monotonous. Um you know, certainly when you're when you're playing test rugby, it's 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 very difficult to to show your true colours. I mean, you're always wary of showing your true colours and being vulnerable. Um, so yeah, but I think by by putting all that on paper, it's been quite a quite a nice experience. And obviously, yeah, we you've mentioned you know some of the some of the journeys you've been on there, and, and Ross and I were chatting just um, just before you joined about the kind of that balancing act between. Um, between your medical studies, between studying at Cambridge and rugby, I mean, we were kind of saying it's it's a difficult thing for us to to get our head around. But how did how did you find that kind of threat? And obviously, it, it carries on as well. But being able to kind of compartmentalise and you know and say right, this is going on in my in my uh, in my medical professional life. This is going on in studying, but I've got to clear my head for all that because I've got to go out and play the All Blacks or play England or or whatever it might be. Yeah, look, I, I I found that the more I really, really kind of obsessed about the game, um, the worse I played on the weekend. And flip side to that, I've probably come to that conclusion. I think the, the less I was obsessive about the game, the better I played. Um, so I kind of worked that out quite early in my career. Um, and I just loved having distraction off the pitch you know I, I was very um kind of I wanted to be very efficient with my time you know when I was at the grounds and I was training it was 100% but then when I was away from the ground it was 0% I wanted nothing to do with rugby when I was when I was away from training you know on a day off maybe in the evenings um you know I'll make sure I was there I was at full tilt but then I just wanted to escape I very rarely on my days off you know, certainly the peak of my career, I'd, I'd want to hang around with the rugby lads. I'd want to completely escape that environment um, and, and work the mind. I guess rugby is is very physically demanding. Um, you talked about kind of compartmentalising. My, my challenge was to differentiate, differentiate between kind of mental and, and physical fatigue. So, you know, I, I found after training, I was very kind of physically fatigued, but mentally I, I, I wasn't really. And then being able to study or go to lectures or, um, you know, tutorials, etc. I could work my mind, but ultimately, in most of those situations, I was sat in a chair, <laughs> I stood still, and and you know, I was working my mind, but it wasn't physically taxing. Um, and so that yin and yang to my life, I guess, I, I could escape rugby on a Tuesday after training, and I could come back to it Thursday morning after the day off, just completely new to it it gave me kind of extra enthusiasm because i hadn't even considered it for a day and a half uh and just doing that over time you know rugby you know for anyone listening or kind of reading a book just get an idea rugby can be very monotonous as a career there's no doubt about that if you you know if you've if you are a bit of a thinker or, or whatever it, it can be quite monotonous you know it's the same weights every day every week <laughs> You know, you're just playing a different team on the weekend. Um, and, it, you know, certainly for me, I would have been 
proper bored if I if I didn't have something away from the game. And again, I worked that out quite early in my life. You know, I, I went straight to uni at eighteen, but I guess I've never known any different. Um, and certainly now I've finished uni and I've I've got a kid now, uh, which keeps me busy enough. But it's um it was my escape. It was my escape from the game. And you know, I think it's important to say that everyone everyone's different. Everyone has their own way of peaking for that eighty minutes on the weekend. Yeah, because ultimately that's all it's about. The, ch- the chapter in the book, I think, with it, sorry, mate, I was going to say the most crystallizes is that whole thing. We, Jamie and I talked about this a lot, the barbarians thing and how that was almost your kind of epiphany where you saw all those world-class players who'd been on the piss all week and trained terribly, could barely catch a ball. And all of a sudden on the Saturday when they played the All Blacks, they flicked the switch and they went out and won. You all went out and won. And I, I speak to you about that. It occurred to me that that almost applies to any profession. You know, you can overthink everything, can't you? You can, you can be so wrapped up in what, if you've got a job to do on the weekend, whether it's professional sport or mob broadcasting in my case, you can overthink it to the degree that it becomes your sole focus. Everything becomes too regimented, too thought through, and you lose that looseness that you perhaps need to, to pull it off. And I, I, I really enjoyed those conversations about the barbarians because it was almost as though that was the moment you thought actually a lot of the knowledge is there it's it's muscle memory as long as i tap into it on the day and i've done enough prep i can forget about it in the in the lead up to these games yeah no i, I completely agree ross i i guess my i'd grown up in the academy system it was all about kind of preparation, you know, have you done all your reps, have you done all your sets, have you got your recovery right, have you got all your analysis done, have you have you done anything, everything possible in the week to be the best player at the weekend? Now, what happens then is, is I've played with some lads and I've been in squads. People assume if you do all that in the weekend, you're going to, in the week, you're going to play well in the eight minutes on a Saturday. Yeah. And it doesn't translate like that. It doesn't work like that, um, professional sport. You know, it's yes, you give yourself the best opportunity, but you still have to deliver for that 80 minutes of the weekend and be at your peak arousal level, I guess. Um, and again, everyone has different ways of of kind of finding their best performance and, and preparing for that best performance. But that, that 2009 episode kind of tilted my perspective on on preparation, etc., in a week on its head, really. Um Probably up, obviously through a biased lens because I've I've been through that week and and enjoyed that success with the Barbarians. But look, I I've been very professional in my career, but I never fell into the trap of assuming that if I did all those things in the week that I'd play well on the weekend. Um, and I you know I've played with lads who who have been like that. They've been fantastic in the week. They do all the work, brilliant, and then they just don't, they just don't deliver on a Saturday. Um, you know, they're not always correlated. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was all about the Saturday 80 minutes for me, regardless of what I'd done in the week. You know, if I missed a few things, it didn't really bother me. You know, I never I never felt that, you know, if I, if I hadn't done a bit of recovery or, I don't know, I hadn't slept as well or maybe missed a meal or what have you, that I'd be like, oh, God, I'm going to play terrible on the weekend now because whatever is I put so much weight to just being in that right state of arousal come that 18 minutes um, and delivering in that 18 minutes. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. The, the interesting, or one of the interesting things you touched on there and read it in the, in the book as well is 
that phrase you use kind of you know rugby's a monotonous existence do you do you kind of as you as you're kind of coming towards the end of your career what relationship do you have with rugby is it, is it you know is it still just a, a very professional one or do you feel like you know there's I guess a bit of that element of of, of being a, a fan or a kid that's still in there um yeah a bit of both look I, I think ultimately relationships with people form the foundation of of the sport don't they you know I thought you speak to loads of players who have finished they will never remember how many jackals they won back in you know, 2014 they remember the night out or they remember the relationships they carry forward from from playing the game um so you know i am very conscious that, you know our time in the game is is all finite as players it's it's going to finish at some point and the things that i cherish most are those relationships with people that i've you know enjoyed the field with or enjoyed the bar with um so that's important and look i'm i'm just competitive i i love the game because it's it, it, it's competitive i i hate doing drills in rugby training that aren't i get i get wound up if there's no element of of competition in it so it forms a foundation of the sport and and what we're all about so you know the minute i i cease to be competitive or or I can't perform at the level which allows me to be competitive, I'll hang up my boots. That that will be, I think my love for the game will, will drop out its backside. Really, I, I I think it's 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 what I'm all about. Um, it's yeah, I want to win. I want to compete against my fellow teammates for the jersey or, or my position, uh, who I'm playing against. So you know, I'm still hungry in that respect. Um, and that's all that matters. I, everything else is is secondary. Talking about uh, about stuff away from the game, it's something that crossed my mind um, as you were as we kind of uh, had this interview lined up. Was how did you two manage to actually get around to writing a rugby book and not sit there talking about music all the time? Given uh, given your mm. your respective passions in uh, in that area as well, Ross is far more knowledgeable about music than me. I'm I'm just a blagger, really. Um, <laughs> I I I I guess my <clears throat> my musical taste is born out of. Uh, family holidays and look we travelled up and down the country as a family you're hosteling here there and everywhere you know we were two young lads best way to do it I think you know my parents certainly thought it was and just the music in the car it's always Pink Floyd Fruit Mac Beautiful South all these all these bands so you know I turn on that music now we, isn't the way you remember lyrics is just crazy in the brain isn't it so I, I know all the lyrics to all these songs um it's uh it's berserk but yeah ross ross is far more um, musically educated than me no doubt but we have chewed the fat many times right in the book go and get the guitar <laughs> we, we, had, we, had, we had a good road trip the other day actually to one of our events with it we had a bit of a stone roses um deep dive and uh opened up that perennial debate about whether the second coming got a hard press when it came out five, you know five years after they released that seminal debut all their fans were desperate for the for the sequel and Second Coming came out to a pretty lukewarm response. But I maintain, and I discovered that Jamie's of the same opinion during our road trip the other day, that Second Coming is a bona fide classic and I'll hear nothing said against it. Look, I don't think we've got to, I, I don't think we've got time to, to get into the Second Coming debate right now. Um, I, you're I, you're I, a child I, in the I, 90s, Jed. You've surely got an opinion on that. Look, I'd certainly be with you that it had a hard time um, and it's... Whether or not it's a bona fide classic album, 
Uh, I think it got an unfair hard rap, and there's a lot of good stuff on there. Um, but you know, how do you how do you follow how do you follow that debut? You know, you can't. It adds to the mystique the fact that they couldn't. That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. Is it kind of a uh, it, it takes 20 years to go back and revisit the album before you can kind of go, actually, yeah, this is this is great. Well, as we discussed the other day, if, if Ian Brown was good looking and he could sing, they'd have been an even better band. <laughs> that's it, that's it, exactly. Um, look, it's been, it's been fantastic to, uh, to chat to you both. Um, and uh, yeah, Jamie, as I was saying to Ross, you, you may or may not remember, we had a very brief chat at, uh, at Quinn's training ground a, a few years ago and the audio failed to fail to work for me so um i'm hoping we don't oh, <laughs> yeah. i know i was oh, uh, listening listeners to this podcast know this story well but yeah i was um deep in the in the midst of editing the podcast like 11 o'clock on a sunday night uh, and that's when i discovered that the audio hadn't worked but um but there, there we go so it's fine it's good to three years later to, to kind of correct that um but yeah best of luck with the um with the book it doesn't seem like you need it because uh yeah it's certainly um Certainly got uh, got plenty of coverage already, and uh, most importantly, uh, best of the luck with the rest of the season for the Dragons. So, man, thank you very much, mate. And Ross, always a, always a pleasure to to have you on board. Really appreciate your time. Pleasure, Jed. All the best, mate. Take care. Cheers, gents. Turn up. Podcast Network.